Well, good evening. It's amazing to be here. Thanks for having me. And um, can I say Happy Mother's Day to you all? And uh, I just wonder whether they're they're present or not. Could we just honour our our mothers uh, just with a round of applause? Because because mums mums are awesome, aren't they? And if you haven't yet uh, sent your mother a card or called her, then I give you full permission to text her quickly now. Um, Normally we don't allow that during the sermon, but if you leave it till afterwards, it's going to be eight o'clock and then it's really obvious that you forgot, so um, do do that. Um, I don't know if we have any uh, mums of of young ones in in the house, but uh, big big love to you. I don't know if you slept well. Uh, I have um, a a daughter who's one and a half now, and um, generally... Uh, she's good as gold. Um, she's lovely. Um, just this week, um, not so much. She's been a bit ill. She's just had a, a chest infection. And on, on Monday night, we just uh, just kind of getting into the, the night's sleep. It's probably about 1 a.m. I don't know if there's a good time to be interrupted during the night, but um, I know that this, this definitely wasn't it, if there is one. Because we heard the crying from the room, turned to Sarah, my wife, and sort of um, said... Shall I go? And there was this silence. And then I heard, yeah. She's got a very deep voice. And um, yeah, clearly she'd misunderstood the, what I was really asking, which was, could you please go? Um, but I thought, hey, it's Mother's Week. We'll... Um, I'll go uh, and, and give my daughter a cuddle, that's obviously all she wants, and just put her back to bed, and then we can all go back to sleep, and that's fine. Sadly, it didn't work like that. I picked her up, and she just was screaming, I mean, really screaming, right in my face, looking at me in the eyes, and screaming. And I, I just began to get so cross, so annoyed with her, thinking, I've been so nice to you for the last 18 months. <laughs> I've let you stay in my house. I've given you food. And this is the thanks I get. This is the the suffering I'm subject to, just screaming in my face. I couldn't believe it. And needless uh, to say, the next day I was very tired. And um, this this week I've been moaning about it quite a lot, really, about this this sleep deprivation. Um, And this came alongside me... uh, Preparing for this talk, um, this isn't an excuse for <laughs> the quality of the talk. Um, beginning to look at Mark's gospel and beginning to t- look at Jesus talking about the suffering that he endured on the cross. And this came uh, after last Sunday when I was here and Andy Britt was speaking and he was encouraging us to consider living more sacrificially than sometimes our comfortable lives will allow. And it just, it just struck me that actually what I was experiencing is not suffering. It was just a minor interruption to my otherwise extremely comfortable life. So today as we uh, start this new series, as we launch that, let's keep in mind that some of that challenge from last week, those of you who are here, to consider living more sacrificially. And let's just be open to any ways that God might just be wanting to interrupt our comfortable lives. 
So the series is called The Cross in Mark, and this week the title is The Son of Man. And that is a title for himself that Jesus used the most, 78 times in the Gospels apparently, more than any other name for himself. The disciples never called him that, but it seemed to be uh, some sort of favorite name Jesus had for himself. So why don't we grab a Bible uh, and, and look up Mark chapter 8. We're going to begin at verse 31. It's page 1012. And it's Mark eight thirty-one to 38. Jesus predicts his death. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Mark's Gospel, if we look at the whole book of Mark... If we just take a step back for a minute, it can be split into two main themes. So the first one asks the question, who is Jesus? And the second half of the gospel asks the question, what did Jesus come to do? And this passage that we just looked at really marks the, the end of that first question and then the beginning of looking at that, that second question. The first question is answered by Peter just before that bit that we read, if you look at verse 27, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? Then he goes a bit deeper, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter stumbles upon the right answer, you are the Messiah. But Peter moments later struggles the most when he starts to tackle that second question of what did Jesus come to do? So we could believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but still only have half the picture. We need to understand why he came, what his mission was, to be able to see everything clearly. And almost as if it's an illustration of these two stages of understanding that we need. Even earlier in the chapter, Jesus heals a blind man in two stages. First, Jesus spits on the ground and he makes some mud and he rubs the mud in the guy's eyes, lays on hands. And Jesus says, do you see anything? And the guy says, I can see people, but they look like trees walking around. He could only half see. 
So Jesus put his hand on the man's eyes and prayed again. His eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and suddenly he saw everything clearly. And this could be the case for many people. Perhaps they see the person of Jesus like a giant tree walking around the stage of world history. When we get to know him as the crucified Christ, as the Son of God who came to take away all the sins of the world, then we begin to see everything clearly. And this title, this, this name for Jesus, Son of Man, I think it sums it up nicely because, first of all, first impression, Son of Man, it reminds us of Jesus' humanity. It reminds us that he was fully a man, which then reminds us that he suffered. But it's not there as some kind of contradiction to him being the Son of God. Actually, the name Son of Man refers back to the book of Daniel in chapter 7 where Daniel sees a vision of this thing called a son of man. It's a heavenly being. It's exalted heavenly figure and it's significant in the history of redemption. So in Jesus using this title for himself, he's opening his identity to people who have ears to hear it. So verse 31, where we started, Jesus is talking really for the first time about the cross. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. He must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. He says the Son of Man must suffer. It's not that Jesus is just predicting that this might happen. He's explaining that he is planning to voluntarily die. He's not just saying, I'll fight and I'll be defeated. But he's saying, this is why I came. I intend to die. He's not saying, I might be attacked by some rebel fighters. But he's saying, the elders, the chief priests, the religious guys are going to reject me. And what's Peter's reaction to this? In verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And the word translated as rebuke, apparently, is the same word that Jesus used when he was casting out demons. It's the strongest possible language. Are we surprised at Peter's reaction? The disciples at this stage I think we're probably expecting, probably hoping for a powerful king who's going to conquer by military force, not a humble king preparing to die. They would have been taught from a really young age that the Messiah was coming and he's going to defeat evil. He's going to defeat injustice by ascending on the throne. I guess they didn't really expect it to look Or feel like this. Can you imagine? Put ourselves in the disciples' shoes for a minute. To one moment realize that Jesus is the Messiah. Everything you've been looking forward to and hoping for and praying for. And then in the next 
moment to hear that he's going to die. To hear that actually Jesus didn't come to live but came to die. He didn't come to take power but to lose it. He didn't come to rule but to serve. That was a lot for the disciples to take in. But that is the way that Jesus would defeat evil and put everything right. So do you think that your, that your reaction would have been any different? I would suggest probably not because we want a glorious and a powerful Christ, not a shamed and dying Christ. And of course, he is a glorious and a powerful Christ. As we saw looking back to that vision of Daniel in, in, uh, in the Old Testament, the heavenly figure exalted above earth. And here in verse 38, he'll come again in his father's glory. And then on chapter 9, verse 1, the kingdom of God will come with power. He's talking about Pentecost. So the glory is there and we're starting to see it. We see it in part now and we'll see it fully in the future. But the path to glory for Jesus is via the cross. Tim Keller puts it like this. When Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins, he won through losing. He achieved our forgiveness on the cross by turning the values of the world on their head. He did not fight fire with fire. He didn't come and raise an army in order to put down the latest corrupt regime. He didn't take power, he gave it up, and yet he triumphed. On the cross then, the world's misuse and glorification of power was exposed for what it is and defeated. The spell of the world's systems was broken. I couldn't put it better myself, so I just read it out. And Jesus invites us to follow him on his path of suffering. He encourages us to take up our cross daily and follow him. He says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. So we have to lose our life to save it. Apparently the Greek word for life here is psych, which is the root that we actually get our word psychology from. So I think here Jesus is talking about our identity. Not that he's saying you need to lose your any sense of being an individual person. He's not saying lose yourself to lose yourself. But Jesus is saying, don't build your identity on gaining things in the world. C.S. Lewis said, nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Where is our identity? If it's in the things that our culture says that we need to have to be accepted... A fulfilling career with money, reputation, status, family. If our identity is primarily in those things, that will never work. Jesus says you could gain the whole world, but still be unsure of who you are. 
And this is how radical Jesus is. So it's not just a case of saying, I've messed up. I've been immoral. So now I'm going to go to church and become a decent moral person. Because that would be just shifting from one performance-based identity to another. We need to find a whole new way. Jesus says, build your identity on me and on the gospel. And it's those two stages again. It's Jesus and it's what Jesus came to do. It's not enough to just say, I'm going to stop building my identity on my parents' approval or on my career or on this relationship. Instead, I'll just build my life on God. If that's as far as we take it, then it's just an act of the will. And no one has ever been deeply changed just by an act of the will. The only thing that can change a life at its root is love. So it's Jesus and the gospel. It's Jesus and what Jesus has done. It's Jesus and the fact that he loves you enough to die for you. Putting your identity in Jesus and in what Jesus has done is the only way to know true life and true freedom. So I wonder if we can just take a moment and consider that. Have you ever surrendered everything to Jesus? Where is your identity lying? It's your identity in Jesus and in the gospel. Or have other things come in? Because I think every now and then we need to realign ourselves. We need to recalibrate ourselves away from comfortable towards holiness. But you may wonder, um, how do I actually go about surrendering everything to Jesus in real terms? It sounds quite abstract and theoretically. And we can agree theoretically that it's a good idea. But how do we go about actually surrendering everything to Jesus? And I think the the answer lies partly in what um, Andy was talking about last week. In living sacrificially, choosing to make uh, material cutbacks for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the poor. And as we deny ourselves materially, I think that's part of God's kingdom work being done in us. But I think there's a second part that's less practical and it's more internal. And it involves us surrendering our identity to Jesus. Because we can come to a level of understanding in our minds and realize that it's something we need to do. But sometimes I think it's helpful to have something physical to act it out. Just to help it become real. And then perhaps... It it helps it move from the head to the heart. So for me, it's often in in times of worship. When we come here uh, to church and other times when we're worshipping, that's when I, I do business with God. Because in our worship, when we come here, we're not just singing nice songs about the truth of who God is. I mean, we are doing that. They're nice songs, Joel. Well done. Nice songs. They're true. They're about God. 
But I think we have the opportunity to go beyond that. And in those times, to actually engage with God. Often it helps if we use our whole body a bit more. Because that reminds us that we're not just here as spectators and just just singing or reading the words, but we're actually involved. We're engaging with God. So something that I found helpful. If we're thinking uh, about bowing down before Jesus as king, if we're thinking about placing our identity fully in him, if we're thinking about surrendering to him, how would this be for, for a posture of worship? This, uh, this position is, is one, of, one of vulnerability. I have limited sight and hearing. Literally laying my life down before the king. So what would it feel like to, to worship from this position? to pray from this position. I just, um, I just share that as, as something that's actually been quite helpful for me in the past, just sort of personally. And it might well be um, that, that that's something that you want you, you want to actually act out. If there's something that's, that's resonated with you, um, if there's a time where you feel you want to recalibrate yourself, you want to surrender to God, you, you, may, you may want to try that um, in, in personal time at home. You may want to do it now, and as the band um, come up, we have time where we're going to respond. And you may, you may actually want uh, to make the more bold step of... Uh, of coming and bowing down. There's space here at the front. There's some space at the back. We have a beautiful new carpet. Um, if you want to take a closer look, that, that is fine. Why don't, we, why don't we all stand to begin with and I'll, I'll pray for us and then the band are going to lead us in worship.